and welcome to the first 2020 episode of Tea with Mama Cash, because feminist activism works. In the spirit of starting a new year and a new decade, we wanted to dedicate this episode to talking about the future, specifically feminist utopias, dystopias, and how the act of imagining can be a tool for social justice. I'm Zora, the executive director at Mama Cash, and today I am dressed for the future. I am wearing sparkly tights, and I can't even describe kind of goggles that are from Blade Runner, because that's my picture of the future. For this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by two special guests who I know have a lot to say on this topic, Hakima Abbas and Gita Misra. Hakima, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Hi, I'm Hakima Abbas. I'm the co-executive director of AWID. Uh, which is a global feminist membership and movement support organization. Something about me, I only very recently discovered persimmons, and they're my favorite fruit now, and I really I eat them as, as often as I can get my hands on Welcome. Gita. Hi, I'm Gita Mitra, and I'm the executive director of CREA, a feminist organization based in Delhi, and something about myself, I love trekking and have um, climbed Kilimanjaro twice. What? (laughs) That is another episode in itself right there. Before we start unpacking what utopia means and what a feminist future looks like, I wanted to ask, what are your favorite works of science fiction or speculative fiction and why? So my favorite Zora is uh, Octavia Butler, of course, and all of her writings. But I think one of my favorite, if I had to pick a favorite of her novels, would be Wild Seed. I don't know if that's because it was my first Octavia and you kind of never forget your first Octavia or, or if it was just the content of the book. Um, but I find her work amazing. Um, but I think second place maybe might be The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. Just because as an anarchist, it was really great to spend time on that planet, Anaris, which is like an anarchist planet. And so it was a great book in that way. Mm-hmm. Gita, what comes to your mind when you yeah. think of yeah, writing, speculative writing or anything like that? So for me, one of my favorite authors who has a large body of writing uh, is someone close to home in India. Her name is Arundhati Roy. And I like her writing because she presents literature as providing a shelter and a place where, for us, we when things get broken, we can rebuild through writing. And she provides, you know, her book transcends all kinds of imaginations. And I think some of my favorite quotes, which have remained with me ever since I read them, she actually talks about another world being possible. She says, another world is not only possible, she's on her way, on a quiet way, I can hear her breathing. And um, I haven't written down the words, I actually remember these and realize the importance of Literature, writing, words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe to add 
uh, one of the things that I think Aaron Dutty and Octavia do together is really center characters um, of oppressed people. And, and I think that's also what, what makes some of their writing quite important. That makes me think about one of my favorite um, anthologies, actually, which is called Octavia's Brood. And it, it sources its inspiration from Octavia Butler, but it's a collection, it's an anthology written by social justice activists who went through a process together of understanding speculative fiction and science fiction writing and how the, the work of activists in social justice is an act of science fiction. You, you're trying to imagine a different future and you're trying to craft a different world or different worlds. And then um, these activists went through a, some writing workshops and built this anthology together. And I, I really found that moving the whole um, way they came together to do this and how it was people who otherwise hadn't particularly thought of themselves as being related to science fiction at all. This was sort of not part of their toolbox in terms of their activism. And then they came out with Octavia's Brood. Um, that was inspired by Octavia Butler, who already was also one of my favorite uh, speculative fiction authors. So that's, uh, if you, if either of you haven't read that, I recommend it to you and to our listeners if you are interested. Utopia comes from the Greek yotopos, meaning no place or nowhere, and is very similar to yotopos. And probably I said those the same because I don't speak Greek, so apologies for that. But yotopos means a good place. So if utopias per definition don't exist, they're too good to be true, why do feminists bother with imagining utopias? How, if at all, can they serve us, do you think? So as you said, Zora, I mean, utopia is very much about this imagined society that's nearly perfect. But as we know, perfect is really subjective. So I think as activists, and, and as you mentioned, Octavia's broods, what we kind of really focus on emancipatory futures. So utopic in the sense of really free and just, um, that's what, what feels important in terms of our own visions of um, a world that could be free with equity, liberation, where those things are achieved. And I think that's really important because as we resist kind of oppressions in the present, patriarchy and others, um, we have to know and be able to also build towards the world that we want to create. We have to be able to do both in some ways at the same time. Um, and so these visions, both sharing them and studying them and debating them, help us kind of both build the belief in those visions of a feminist future, but also begin to build them in the present and reveal to us where they exist in some form in, in the present. Um, and as at AWID, one of the things that we've been talking about is, is those elements of feminist futures that exist in the now, um, in the emancipatory practices and systems that we've created as feminists. We're calling those feminist realities. So it's almost like moving from utopia, no place, to like an omnitopia, all places, everywhere. Um, and the feminist realities that exist, even if they're imperfect, that they provide us that sense of possibility for our continued struggle. Gita, what do you think? You know, um, it's 
it's a, it's an interesting question because I think as people, we all um, love dreaming uh, when the dreams are um, utopic or positive or affirmative. And I think sometimes to be accused of utopian thinking can be seen as an insult, especially in our times where uh, we pride ourselves in being grounded and realistic and sober. You know, is, is this a moment where we can be utopic? Um, but if we sit with history for a moment and we see that changes in society or the way people think or who we include seldom begin with actual concrete developments. They begin with acts of imagination or sharpened sense of trying to build something new, a new way of organizing, communicating, representing, thinking. And to me, some of these details are in dreams. Um, and I think connecting this back to your feminist fiction um, piece, that's what it is. It's part of thinking and recognizing other ways of living, which are equally valid, equally worthy of respect, equally troubling, equally beautiful, equally human. And I think there's a real desire for this um, kind of thinking that allows us to make possible to do things differently, to be better, to be more aware. And so, you know, dreaming is also about thinking um, about a future where we want to re-envision it. We don't like what it is now. We want to eliminate some harm. We want to think about, you know, different colors. Maybe, um, you know, how we collectively can think about something uh, beautiful about our struggles. And I think it points to how many of us adapt to struggle also in a more utopian way. Um, if we look at specific examples of, you know, a lot of our work around issues of disability, uh, the dreaming in, about this in feminist science fiction, the way bodies get represented differently, what is normalized. Um, these are all part of dreaming, dreams about different ways of being, living, and existing in the world. I really like the idea of, of dreaming, it being about dreaming, and also, Hakima, your point about, um, Sugita's point about dreaming, and Hakima, your point about it, the kind of bringing it everywhere, so from nowhere to everywhere. And I've been thinking a lot about the climate crisis lately, as many of us are, and um, what I believe is going to be necessary is really dreaming and creating different alternatives and imagining something different than what we do right now. And I'm wondering, how are you finding, how is Im imagining and dreaming contributing to, to what you're actually trying to pursue as well in the work that you're carrying I would say that um, dreaming is is a hugely important part of 
social justice work. Um, and as Gita said, it's not just dreaming for the sake of it. It's really about dreaming to find the solution. Um, because anything that uh, seems impossible is just impossible because we haven't yet done it. Um, and I think that carries um, in a lot of the traditions of struggle that I've um, been, I don't know, I'm ascended to, um, that those really carry. So, for example, um, in Africa, there's, a, there's a, a revolutionary leader from Burkina Faso called Thomas Sankara who, who said that um, it took the madmen of yesterday to to really create the, the, the change that they wanted to create. But you can't carry out fundamental change without that certain amount of madness, and that, in this case, that it comes from non-conformity. And um, he said, we have to dare to invent the future. And I think that really holds that if we believe in a society that can be free and can be... Um, outside of some of the more oppressive and dominant systems that we have to start with with the dreaming and with the future and and with the idea of what that looks like so that we can hold that in our strategy even if we use different tactics to get there and hakima thinking about what you just said there is a specific strand of this imaginary work we're talking about called afrofuturism what is afrofuturism and what does it offer us in, in this work we're doing around world-making, thinking about race, for, instance, for example, and what you're, what you're thinking, telling us about now in terms of, it, it, yeah, it takes thinking beyond. Right. So Afrofuturism really comes from this sense that as colonized people in dominant narratives, that we're, we're raced from the future, and I would even say we're raced from the past in this to emphasize our subjugation, um, and from the present, where really we're de depicted as if we don't belong to this time, you know, that we're primitive of the past, almost embodying an anachronism, like we're not supposed to be here. Um, but of course, anything that exists now, our societies, our political systems, our knowledges, etc., our cultures, that exist today are as modern as anything that exists today. Um, and, and that's the same in terms of colonial imperialism and white supremacist narrative that erased black and indigenous and other oppressed people from the future, from its design and from its vision. Because the starting point for the future, that colonial future, is really a dominant white presence. And um, so that's from out of there that colonized people, and particularly in this case Africans, kind of begin to build ideas um, in which we're depicted, in which we are present. Um, and so people think of Afrofuturism as largely an artistic form, um, illustration, graphic art, and I know Black Panther, for instance, was a huge um, hit last year or the year before um, and in music like Felicuti had a song called 2000 Black um, and of course the year 2000 felt like a long way away when he was writing that um, but it, as I said it's, 
also deeply part of um, African activism and movement building and, and, and African societies, this idea that we have to uh, write ourselves into the future. Let's take a quick break here, and then we'll be back to talk about feminist perspectives on technology, uh, the concerns as well as the possibilities, very much a theme for the future. So stay tuned. Want to learn more about the groups we support and how you can support them too? Head over to www.mamacash.org. We're back with Hakima Abbas, co-executive director of AWID, and Gita Misra, executive director of CREA, talking about feminist utopias. Technology often crops up in narratives about the future and is often portrayed as dangerous or encroaching. Where do you think these anxieties around technology come from and to what extent are they justified? Yes, so I think our anxieties about technology have always arisen even before digital technologies existed, which are industrial or something to do with machines. I think uh, humankind has always been inventing technologies to make life easier, to make life better. And every time there's been a new technology, um, there has been anxiety. Uh, we know when the press uh, was invented, there was anxiety. Um, so I think that our anxieties around these arise from questions about our own humanity. Now the questions, if you look at them, are always the same. It's the same old questions and conflicts which underlie any anxiety. And that is true even about technology. Hmm. So they are about they are about what does it mean to be human? How is this technology about how is it going to interface with our consciousness about intelligence? How it is about our morality? It in essence what sets us apart and makes us specifically human is our humanity. And in a way, I think we have constructed our humanness and our human identity in, in what we think is not sentient, what is not human. And sometimes that is about technology. So let me give you an example. Right now, in the digital age, our lives, I feel, are no longer only physical. The way we live now is defined to some extent or another by technology. And the tapestry of our life has shifted from the physical world to the physical plus digital. And we weave in and out of these spaces like tangled balls of wood. So just to complete what I'm thinking, you know, all construction of our identities is happening in relation to something else, you know, and something other. And in this sense, I think this technology has now become the other in our life. You know, we're in a constant dynamic relationship with technology. It's a push, it's a pull. We ask questions about ourselves, we give some answers, 
and then we have new questions. And this creates these anxieties. Tita, what what you were just saying made me think about um, technology as just any other tool, but also its relationship to power. I think that is really fascinating from what you were just saying, that it's not really about the technologies, it's about who we are as humanity, and in my mind also how we use power and, and therefore what we use these technologies for primarily in different instances. Um, and that it reminded me of also how Octavia Butler talks in her books about the idea that humanity's fundamental flaw is hierarchy and intelligence. Um, and that, mm-hmm. that kind of, um, that being something that perpetually will bring us back to these questions of power. Um, so I, I totally agree with you and it's a really fascinating place. And I think just as a, a second thought, um, Zora brings me back to what you were asking earlier about climate and the environment and the planet. Um, I think that there, there's a dominant ideology where um, man can conquer everything with technology, even the harm that we're doing to the planet. But we're seeing so much really important resistance to that from um, lots of communities, from indigenous, peasant, rural communities, from young people, um, to say that it's it's not just about conquering, but it has to also be about how we live in harmony with, with the planet and the ecosystem. I've been thinking about that a lot too, and and that connects, I think, also with, Gita, what you were saying right at the beginning around basically what counts as technology and right now what counts for many people what they think about when they think about technology is things that are built out of particular kinds of materials but technology is also just how we do things it doesn't have to have a digital interface with buttons or something like this that's not the only kind of technology and so when we're thinking about the climate crisis and the ways we're going to need to shift and the alternatives we're going to need to generate and create or revert back to, some of that is technology too. It's just not large infrastructure projects, for example. It's not windmills or solar panels, though they may have their place as well. There are other kinds of technologies that aren't about new things being built um, that we will need to um, adopt and use. And some of that is about the way communities have traditionally organized um, their resources or their environments or worked with the planet and the technologies they used to use. Um, I don't think we're all going to end up hand plowing, for instance, but technically that is a technology. Where do we think then that technology offers us hope? What are we excited about in terms of feminism and technology? No, I think, um, you know, I think feminist perspective on this thing is center. I think technology allows us to do both, center ideas of autonomy and agency. But I think we are also interested in the um, excited about technology because um, it is a domain of control 
and it seeks to control and regulate uh, autonomy, but it also gives us um, a lot of agency in which we in which we can push back on modes of control and allows us self determination and the ability to exercise our rights. And you know, digital technology is giving rights to new rights claims and demands and including the right to be forgotten. Mm. So as feminists, technology is fundamentally interesting to us because of this. We know it's not useful to view anything through a single lens and often with women's rights for the rights of people uh, who are born women have to live as women, we find that often this lens is limiting. But when you apply this to technology, then it is simple to develop an analysis about the alarming effects, uh, about surveillance, about vulnerability, about attack. But then we do miss the whole story. And so I'm glad you asked the question about excitement uh, because spaces of technology are not just mirrors of our physical world. In some, you know, they also disrupt the norms of the physical world. And it disrupts the ways in which society play out. So it gives us spaces for expression, for exploration. It gives us spaces to dissent. It gives us the ability to network. It gives us the ability to build alliances and meet people that we may not have communicated with before. It's partly a mode of resistance. And it's sometimes a tool and sometimes it's sight. And it's become a source of pleasure and joy and fun in our lives. And I think that itself is crucial. The idea of us seeking things which are purely pleasurable are not always instrumental. I think it disrupts this normative idea about what our place in society is. So in that sense, I think as feminists, our job is to always maintain a systemic critique and an analysis of power and not be reductive in our analysis of technology. And then we question how power is produced, reproduced, disrupted. So no blind optimism and no blind alarmism helps us. And for me, that is the excitement about, you know, that technology offers us. Let's take a quick break, and then I want to talk to you both more about the future, but specifically about the future of feminist activism. Stay tuned. It's time for feminist mishaps, because nobody's perfect, and we're all human. Gita, I know you have a blunder to share. Yes, and I think I've shared the blunder with many friends, but in this public way, I, I'm quite excited actually to share it. I was on a holiday. I met a couple, a husband and wife uh, from the UK, and we got chatting, and uh, they both said they worked for British Airways. Um, and I was talking to them, and I automatically asked the wife, I said, how do you deal with all the passengers on the flight and all their demands and needs that would drive me crazy? And she turned around and said, 
Oh, actually, I don't. I'm the captain and I fly the plane. And that was a very <laughs> embarrassing, feminist moment for me where I just assumed that they were both from an airline and she was a flight attendant. Never will live that down in my headspace. That is amazing and classic, and I bet we can, uh, most of us can really sympathize with that. Hakima, do you have I, anything you want to share? Keith has just reminded me of a feminist blunder I had only a few weeks ago, which is awful. <laughs> but um, I was at home in uh, Dakar, and I was um, there was a construction site. And um, there were men in the construction site and there was a woman in the construction site. And automatically, I assumed, and I'm trying to justify myself, I think, (laughs) but automatically, I assumed she was there to, I don't know, provide meals or something. Um, But no. She stood there and suddenly got out this huge drill, one of those ones that you put into the earth and like (laughs) went in it. (laughs) And I was shamed um, forever, but I thought, oh, so we're always learning. (laughs) Yes, I love that that was just a few weeks ago that, you know, this isn't all in our very far past. It, It does happen all the time to all of us. Do you listeners have a feminist blunder of your own? I'm sure you do. Are you ready to come out with it? Send us your confessions anonymously if you wish, and we may share it on a future episode. You can reach us on Twitter at MamaCash or by email at t at mamacash.org. The theme of the 26th AWID Forum, Hakima, was feminist futures. What does a feminist future look like? And does it look the same for everyone? I think that's really the beauty of feminist futures is that they don't look the same for everyone, that we create our feminist futures in the ideas and center them in in our identities and and in our multiple feminisms. Um, The AWID Forum in 2016 was indeed on the theme of feminist futures, and I think so many ideas about ways in which we could govern ourselves, our bodies, our nations, the ways in which we could um, have restorative justice, the ways in which we could um, think about economies completely differently. Um, Those all really came out and there were some really beautiful visions of that. And building on that, we're going into the 2020 AWID Forum, 2021, sorry, it's in January. Um, and there we will be talking about where those visions are actually realities. So the theme of the 2021 AWID Forum is feminist realities, um, and we'll be talking a bit more during that forum about feminist visions of the future, but also really focusing on how we're building those visions in the present. And it's really nice for Mama Cash to be able to be part of that effort. Um, and as some of you may know, and some of you may, this may be new information, AWID and CREA 
um, are in a collaboration with Mama Cash and a couple of others in a program called Count Me In. It also includes Jazz, Just Associates, and the Urgent Action Funds around the world, and the Red Umbrella Fund as well, as well as our partner Women Equals Men in the Netherlands. And we're so excited about the, the next forum to see... Where have we gone when the last forum was talking about futures and then we'll be in the future talking about the past, about the present. So that was a bit confusing, but it made sense in my mind. And if we do more of that, um, thinking about the future and the past and the present all at the same time, and as we're coming to the end of the episode, I wondered, for both of you, are there things that have happened in the past decade, since we're at the beginning of the next decade, that 20 or 30 years ago, you might have thought that will never happen in my lifetime, whether good or bad. I think for me, what's happened in the last decade is the resilience, the imagination, the thinking of so many feminists uh, that you know, 10 years ago, I couldn't imagine that young women in India would sit in resisting uh, all kinds of oppressions and the numbers would grow and grow. And it made me think that 10 years ago, I didn't think we are the ones we are waiting for. And right now, I feel so excited about the fact that there's feminists in every place, uh, in every section, at every age of society, in every age, in every place, at the grassroots, local, rural. I see it in my country, and I see it globally, uh, and the numbers and the imagination really excites me. I would add to that, I think some of the toppling of the dictatorships that we saw throughout the African continent in in the last decade, um, but it was amazing to see from Sudan to Egypt to Gambia, um, people and particularly women um, taking to the streets and being able to um, topple some of these regimes, but then also fighting and working to, to keep some of those gains where possible, even you know, under really difficult circumstances since then. Um, Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the question for myself and trying to think about um, my highlights of feminist activism in the past decade and whether there was anything that happened that I thought, yeah, that, that will never happen. Um, and I think actually the things that I can think about are, are sort of terrible things. There are things that have happened that I thought would never happen, and I can't think of anything that I thought that will never happen and it happened because I naively maybe live in perpetual hope so I always assume it can happen it's just a matter of time and thinking about the future taking the moment to think about the future in this wonderful episode on feminist futures what are your hopes and dreams what do you what would you like to will into being through our dreaming and collective imagination over the next 10 years for our feminist movements for our feminist activists and for women, girls, trans, and intersex people everywhere. Zora, can I ask, what were some of those terrible things that you felt 
wouldn't have happened that happened in the last decade. I think the reversals on some fundamental rights, human rights of women. So if we think about abortion, for example, in some contexts um, where there was a dramatic pushback and attempts to overturn the assassination of some high-profile political activists when we know there's constant assassinations and murders of all kinds of women um, and girls and trans people and intersex people. But I thought that some of these activists were somehow beyond the reach of that, that sexism, and they weren't. And I was caught a bit off guard by some of that. Yeah. You make me think that the trend also in um, Europe of the rise of these far-right slash fascist parties also felt like a not necessarily that it wouldn't have happened, it wasn't necessarily surprising, but it is something about the last decade that people had hoped would never happen again. Exactly. We know that change is possible and we know it can it can happen quickly, it can happen surprisingly. So as some of this, whether it was surprising or not, there's still a bit of really. Can we think about that for the positive? What are things that we just think, yeah, next 10 years, this is it. Well, I think in the next 10 years, we will find, uh, hopefully, uh, uh, people suspending judgment around difference and diversity of people, hierarchies becoming less blurred, especially for people who are at the margins, people who become kinder, more empathetic, and really um, making friendships and alliances and by listening, deep, deep listening and deep thinking about what injustice and justice, what is the vision of justice for particular people that are different from oneself. And that's my hope, that we do build a shared vision of what a, um, a world without violence can look like, what is the shared vision of people who have disabilities and trans and intersex and lesbian, how people can come together and really understand um, what it means to have a shared sense of, a sense of justice. Nice. Hakima, your dreams. I think I'm entering 2020s with a lot of optimism because of how they started. I think seeing the um, people's movements on the streets in Chile, in Iraq, in Guinea, all over the world, um, really focused as well on neoliberalism, on the economic system, and um, people saying they've had enough. I think that's really hopeful start to the new decade. And I... I see a wave, um, again, maybe this is my eternal optimist side, but I see a wave of um, people's energies and excitement in uh, lots of different types of people. Um, and what's quite important about this wave and these movements is also for us as feminists how feminism is 
often being centered in these movements, um, be it on climate or on the economy or on other things. Um, I hope that in the next decade that we make some really significant gains, both in terms of what we're resisting, but also in terms of the feminist realities that we're building. Thanks for listening. You can find Mama Cash, as well as Awid and Kriya, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Or you can find Mama Cash on www.mamacash.org. You can find Tea with Mama Cash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to help us build towards a more feminist future, there are many things you can do. You can rate and review this podcast or tell a friend about it to help us reach more people. You can donate via our website to support feminist activists around the world who are, today, constructing our feminist futures. And now you can even start your own fundraiser with our awesome new fundraising platform. More information about that on our website, too. You can always reach us, and we love to hear from you, with questions, feedback, or ideas by email at t at mamacash.org or via the other channels. This is your host, Zora Musa, signing off until the next time. This podcast was produced by Amanda Gigler, Mike Mirkovich, Sophia Sewell, and Susan Jessup, colleagues at Mama Cash. And of course, we'd like to extend a very special thanks to Hakima Abbas and Geeta Misra for joining us today.